We've been in a series in the book of 1 Peter, and uh, we are going verse by verse through this letter. And Peter addresses the letter to exiles. And this is a metaphor. Uh, Peter's not talking about literal exiles who are estranged from their literal home. All Christians in the world are exiles. Uh, Although your residence is here, you may own a home here. You may have friends here. As a Christian, your citizenship is somewhere else. Your values are from somewhere else. Your identity is from somewhere else. And here's the question. How do we then live as exiles in the world? How do we as Christians live as exiles in the U.S.? How do we live in a way where where we can demonstrate that this world is not our home? Now, last week, uh, Peter began talking about how we as exiles engage with things like racism and and oppressive systems like slavery. And uh, we're going to talk again uh, this week about that. Last week, we kind of did an overview of the Bible to show how it was vehemently against things like racism. And this week, we're going to look at the passage and ask the question, how might this passage help us? when it comes to fighting against racism and, and slavery. This is an important issue right now. Um, Sam Collier, who's a, a, a black uh, leader in the church, he said that we as Americans are fa- facing the greatest racial tension in our nation since the 1960s. And it's kind of sparked by things like, you know, the, the death of George Floyd, which exposed, you know, uh, uh, you know, the injustice in our criminal uh, justice system and, and the racism there and police brutality and, and the racism that's lacent in our, in our culture. And the question is, how do we as Christians engage in things like that? How do we respond? Now, we could b- respond by withdrawing and just say, hey, our job is just to stay to ourselves and do our own thing. But what, Christian want, what uh, Peter wants us to do as Christians is engage in this issue. Now, as we look at doing that, this passage doesn't seem to help us much. Uh, Peter begins by saying, slaves, obey your masters. And it seems like when you read this passage, it almost seems like Peter is tacitly approving of the morally abhorrent practice of slavery. At worst, it seems like he's doing that. At best, it seems like he's kind of just indifferent to the institution. He's kind of ambivalent to things like racism and slavery. And this is why many non-Christians have accused the Bible of excusing and even condoning slavery. Uh, One one example is from a, a New Testament author. He's not a Christian. His name is Morton Smith. And he said this. He says, there were innumerable slaves in the emperor, of the emperor and of the Roman state. Jerusalem, the Jerusalem temple owned slaves, the high priest owned slaves. Uh, One of them lost their ear in Jesus' arrest. All of the rich and almost all of the middle class owned slaves. So far as we are told, Jesus never attacked this practice. If Jesus had denounced slavery or promised liberation, we would almost certainly have heard of his doing it. We hear nothing. So the most likely supposition is that he said nothing. The implication is, when it comes to racism and and oppressive systems like slavery, the Bible's silent. The Bible doesn't help us. Uh, The Bible doesn't motivate us us to go out and do anything about things like this. But the point I want to make this morning is that when you actually understand what's going on in this passage, you will see that the Bible is actually revolutionary when it comes to equality. The Bible is actually revolutionary, not only in its own day, but also in our day. It gives us direction. And so uh, we're going to look at the passage here to see how it does that. Now today, 
Uh, this is going to be kind of like a porcupine sermon. I'm going to make many fine points, but they're going to be all over the place. And so uh, just try to follow me. Uh, first, what I want to do is point out a couple important pieces of background information. And then we'll see three reasons why this passage is revolutionary in its day. And then finally, we're going to see four things how it is revolutionary in our day. So let's, uh, there's the roadmap. Let's go ahead and jump into it. So first, we've got to get into some background information. So uh, when you understand the background, you kind of understand why Peter doesn't go after uh, slavery, slavery uh, in, in this passage, why he doesn't immediately confront this evil institution. The first thing you need to understand is, is something called the oikos. The oikos is a Greek word. It means household. And the household was uh, the most important social institution in the ancient world. Uh, we think of a household, we think of the nu nuclear family. And that day, it was much bigger than that. It was made up of slaves, masters, parents, wives, husbands, children's children. And what Peter is doing here is he is addressing the household. Every ancient philosopher, you need to know this, addressed the household in what was called household codes. So uh, Plato, Aristotle, Plutarch, Cicero, all of them gave instructions to this very important institution. And they helped uh, people within this institution order their lives and, and thus provide stability in the Roman world. So what Peter is doing here is he's helping these, these readers apply his message to the givens of their day. What does it look like for me to apply the gospel on Monday morning? That's what Peter's doing here. The second thing we need to understand is the Roman institution of slavery. Now, when we think about slavery and we come to a passage like this, we immediately kind of compare it to uh, New World slavery and kind of slavery in early American history. And, and what I want you to see is that there is no parallel between the ancient uh, slavery in, in Peter's world and modern slavery today, either early American slavery or illegal trafficking. There's no parallel. So let's look at ancient slavery. Uh, here's what you need to know. First of all, ancient slavery was not race-based. It wasn't race-based. So uh, people owned slaves that were their own race. They owned slaves that were, that were of a different race. They owned slaves of all kinds of races. Slavery was just not connected to racism or to uh, discrimination against a particular race in the ancient world. Number two, uh, slavery was not lifelong. So uh, there were a lot of reasons why you might become a slave in, in Rome. Um, you might become a slave because of a, you were a prisoner of war, and then you, you were made a slave after that. Uh, criminals were often made slaves. But there were also slaves that chose slavery um, to get out of debt. So there's something called indentured servitude, where there was no bankruptcy, bankruptcy in Rome. And so if you wanted to work your way out of financial straits, you could become an indentured service, servant and then in 10 years earn your freedom when you'd earned enough capital. You need to see that ancient slavery was variegated. And what this means is that there were all kinds of different slaveries. Uh, there were brutal kinds and not so brutal kinds. Uh, you shouldn't think of the ancient system as one system. Think of it as a lot of different types of slaveries. Slaveries, plural. Um, also, uh, slaves were paid. They were paid a going, the going wage. Um, also, some slaves owned other slaves. 
It's another thing, it's, if you were a slave, you could actually own another slave. This is another thing that went on in the ancient world. It was just very different than early American slavery. And then another thing is that some slaves actually became very wealthy. Uh, some slaves were doctors, some were professors, others were administrators, and some civil servants. So it was possible to be a slave and actually work your way into a pretty comfortable lifestyle economically. Now, don't hear me saying that I, thought the, that I think the ancient institution was good or it was great or we should all follow it. Um, certainly, slavery in the ancient world and most of the slavery in the ancient world was absolutely brutal. You'll see that from the passage that we're going to look at this morning. All I want you to see is that it was different. It was very different, which gets you, gives you an understanding of why Peter doesn't immediately go after it. The way we should understand a slave in the ancient world is that a slave was on the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. There were people that had very little power, very little clout, very little status in the ancient world. And so the question is, how was Peter's words in this passage revolutionary for them? Let me give you three, three ways that Peter's uh, teaching here is revolutionary to ancient slaves. The first thing I want to point out is that in, in this passage, I want you to see that Peter addresses the slaves directly. Peter addresses the slaves directly. So um, notice here, he talks to the slaves. Slave, obey your master, be subject, and then he goes on and he explains. And, and Peter addresses the slaves here. And in our world, that, but that's not a big deal to us, but it was a really big deal back then. Nobody would address a slave. Remember I mentioned Plato and Cicero and all these other ethical writers who wrote household codes. When you look at the household codes, none of them talked to the slaves directly. They would speak to the man of the house who, who had the authority to, to enforce order. So what Peter is doing here is incredibly subversive. Notice not only does he talk to the slave directly, he also talks to the slave first. He will go on and talk to the uh, the husband, the wife, the children, but Peter addresses the slave first here. Again, would have been radical and revolutionary. And thirdly, I want you to see that he addresses them the longest. Peter gives the most space, he gives the most words, he gives the most time to the slaves here. Again, this would have been revolutionary. So Peter here is paying attention to people in his culture that nobody else would have paid attention to. I was trying to think of an illustration of this. It's almost like if you're a boss or a CEO and uh, your company has a big you know, gathering or a banquet and the, and the CEO walks into the banquet, walks into the room and goes directly to the custodial staff and he talks to them first and he spends all of the evening with them and then before he leaves the, the even, for the evening, he talks briefly to the higher-ups and then leaves. If a CEO did this, he would have been making a statement, a very bold statement about the value of people in that situation. And so Peter here is showing us that, that slaves, even though they didn't matter in that culture, were people of dignity, people that mattered, brothers and sisters in Christ who had moral responsibility. And this has led uh, people who looked at the, in, in the New Testament to see how revolutionary it is. And so one, one um, New Testament author, his name is Helmut Keister, which you gotta love that name, Helmut Keister. 
uh, he, he talks about how uh, Christianity in that first century world was so attractive to people like slaves. They just flocked to the Christian church because in the church they found a community of equality. You know, you read Paul's letters, and he's constantly saying that slaves were brothers and sisters. And so they found embrace here. There's, let me just read you his quote. He says, here is a community, talking about the early Christian community, that invites you, which makes you an equal with other members of that community, which does not give you any disadvantages. On the contrary, it gives even the lowliest slave personal dignity and status. Peter speaks to them directly. Secondly, here's another radical piece of this passage. Peter names the injustice. He names the injustice. Notice he says, um, be subject to the Lord's, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. I'm sorry, down in verse 18, he says, slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but to the unjust, verse 18. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows for suffering unjustly. You see it twice there. Peter says, the way you're being treated by your master is not right. Now, this is important. Again, ancient, you know, we, we kind of think, well, yeah, of course, but in the ancient world, nobody would have thought that a, a master beating a slave would have been all that weird. You know, you, nobody would bat an eye if they walked down the street and saw something like this. Uh, you might walk by and say, oh, that's fitting, or that's normal, that's part of the status quo. Someone might even say, that's good, that's a good thing. Peter says, it's injustice. It would have been revolutionary for someone to say something like that in this ancient culture. Now notice here he says the way the master is treating the slave is similar to the way Jesus was treated by the Roman Empire. He, puts G, the, the, he compares the suffering of Jesus to the suffering of the slave. And he says just as when Jesus suffered under the Roman Empire by Pontius Pilate, it unmasked the unjust and just a treatment of people in the Roman Empire, so you as a slave are suffering that same sort of injustice. Peter calls it out. And what I love about this is that Peter's not a slave. Peter's a free man. This, he is not a victim himself, and yet he's, he's, calling, he's calling it out when he sees it out there. And he's naming it for them. Now, somebody says, well, yeah, but he also tells the slave to obey the master. What's up with that? Well, just because Peter tells the, the slave this doesn't mean that he's also not against the injustice of it. There are ways to peacefully protest. There are ways to name injustice without retaliation, without entering into the cycle of violence. In fact, people like Martin Luther King Jr. talked about uh, peaceful protesting and nonviolent opposition to unjust structures. One, one quote by Martin Luther King Jr., he said this, nonviolent resistance against injustice is not just being quiet, not rocking the boat. It is active resistance against injustice. It aims to defeat evil, not people. Nonviolence believes justice will win. And so Peter here, he names the injustice. Even though he says don't retaliate, this doesn't mean that he's not against the evil that's going on here in this situation. Thirdly, and probably most uh, radically, I want you to see that Peter reverses the power dynamic. When you look at this passage, 
uh, you need to ask the question, where is Jesus in the passage? Jesus shows up in the passage, and, and where is he? Jesus is put in the place of the slave. He's suffering with the slave. He's showing solidarity with the slave. And this is really important because what it does is it changes the power dynamic because Jesus elevates the slave by identifying with him. Remember, um, Morton Smith at the beginning of the sermon, he says, Jesus was silent about slavery. Jesus never talked about slaves. In fact, Jesus did talk about slavery and he did talk about being a slave. Do you remember where it was? He called himself a slave. He washed his disciples' feet and he says, I, your Lord and Master, have become your slave. And what this means is that it elevates people who are down on the margins, who are, who are down there below. Jesus, in Philippians 2, it says, although he was in the form of God, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a slave, which reverses the power dynamic here. There's a story of a wife and a husband, and they're in a theater. And it's a story I heard about a friend last week. And uh, they sit down in the theater, and the, and the husband gets up to go get pop, popcorn before the movie starts, and like some of us do, you know. And when he came back into the theater, it was already dark, so he couldn't find his wife in there. But he finally sees her, you know, and so he comes, and he sits down, and he kind of cozies up next to her, and he puts his arm around her, and he gives her the popcorn. And as he's sitting there, he hears a voice, a whisper from two seats down. The whisper said, Bruce, it's me, your wife. I'm down here. Always pay, pay attention to where your wife is sitting in the theater. But as you read this passage, passage, it's almost like Jesus is whispering to his people, I'm down here. I'm down here. This is where Jesus is. This is where he always is. Jesus whispers to us at his birth, born in a marginal city in the Roman Empire in a cattle stall to a peasant family. I'm down here. He whispers to us in his life. An itinerant preacher who was homeless, who was always eating with people who were on the wrong side of equality. I'm down here. Jesus whispers to us in his teaching where he taught the first will be last. If you want to be Lord of all, you need to be servant of all. In the book of Matthew, right before Jesus goes to the cross, he, he says, whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you've done that to me. Whatever, however you've treated people who have no power, people who are on the margins, people that are on the wrong side of, equal, of equality, however you've treated those people, you've treated that, that you've done that to me. Jesus is saying, I identify with them. And so Jesus whispers to us on his cross as he died the death of a criminal. Outside the city gates, he's whispering, this is where I am. So what, what Jesus does and what Peter is kind of building on here is reversing that power dynamic. If you're a master and you're in charge, you need to serve. You need to be like a slave and you need to serve your servant. And if you happen to be a slave, well, you know who else was a slave? Your master. 
Jesus Christ. This is revolutionary in Peter's day. And I love what F.F. Bruce says when he looks at this passage. It's going to come up on the screen here. He says, you know, even though Peter doesn't confront slavery as an institution, look what he does here. He says, what Peter's letters do is to bring us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. In other words, if, if masters treated their servants like this, if servants acted this way towards their masters, it would create an environment where that system wouldn't even exist anymore. Well, let me ask the question, how do we bring this into our, our situation now in, in, our, in our world? In a, in a situation where we're looking at police brutality and maybe the criminal justice system and we're seeing racism around, what is our role? What, what do we do as Christians in response to this? Well, I think this passage gives us a few ways that we can apply it as exiles in the U.S. The first thing I want you to see that this passage might want us to do is to listen. To listen. Listen to people who might be on the wrong side of injustice. Listen to people who might be on the wrong side of inequality. Just like Peter does in the passage, he addresses the slave first. He's paying attention to the slave. He engages the slave. He's valuing the slave. What would it look like for us to pay attention to people on the margins? Wherever there are people that are crying out for justice, wherever there are people that might be on the margins and suffering inequality, wherever there might be wrongs to people who don't have power, Christians of all people should care and should listen. So how might we do this? Well, this past week somebody sent me a video on uh, right, now, right Now Media, which is, Sam just announced it, you know. It's got a whole section on racial uh, equality and reconciliation. And, and one of the videos was put out by Matt Chandler at the Village Church in Dallas. And uh, he just had a panel of uh, six African-American pastors that were talking about their experience in our country. And what struck me about this, this video as I watched it was one of the pastors was, was Brandon Washington, who's one of the guys that we, we support as a church. He's one of our church planners. He's got a church called Embassy Church in Dallas, uh, Colorado. And Brandon began telling the story. He said, you know, um, he says, when I was a kid, 10 years old, I was living in the west side of Dallas, which is just a real gritty area of town. And he says, I, one, I, we were out one night, and, and one of my relatives was arrested by the police because he was in the wrong place and he was the wrong color. He said he didn't do anything wrong. And during the arrest, the, the policeman from behind just hit him on the neck and then beat him to the ground. And then later it was revealed that he was innocent. They let him go. And Brennan Washington said, as a little 10-year-old boy, I just looked at my, my dad and I said, Dad, what are we going to do about this? We got to do something about this. And his dad just said, son, what are we going to do? Call the police? And Brennan was just like, you just got to understand why I might just be a little bit distrustful because of my experience. And he said, you know, we live in such a binary culture where if I say that I'm worried about police brutality, that automatically means that I'm against the police. He says, I'm not against the police. I have many friends and brothers that I love who are police. But he says, you got to understand my situation. 
And so we could listen to their stories, uh, people that are on the wrong side of equality. Because if you don't, you know, you might be tempted to say, well, there's no problem. I don't, I don't experience any problem. I don't see a problem. And, and you probably won't see a problem unless you, or see the depth of the problem until you begin to listen to people that might be on the wrong end of that. So I think we could listen just the way Peter uh, is paying attention to this, this person in the passage. We can listen. We could also lend our voice. We could also lend our voice. Uh, Peter in the passage is not a slave himself, and yet he speaks out and he names the injustice. He's not a victim of it, and yet he could look out there and he could name it when it's happened to, happening to somebody else. I was listening to uh, another interview with Albert Tate. He's a pastor of a fellowship in Monrovia, California, African-American brother, and he was, and they were just saying, hey, what this, uh, he was being interviewed by David Kinnaman from the Barna Group, and, and David Kinnaman was saying, well, what, what can we do as, as white evangelicals, as your brothers and sisters who want to just show empathy, what can we do? Albert Tate said, lend us your voice. And he says, you know, he says, he said, I can speak all day long about my injustice. But he says, honestly, after a while, I just start sounding like an angry black man. And people just stop listening to me. But he says, when, he says, when my white brothers and sisters speak out for me, he says, there's something powerful about that. And you can speak out, you know, on, on social media. You, don't, you know, a lot of us, you know, you think about Black Lives Matter, and there's a lot of things that I don't like about that organization. You don't have to agree with the organization to show solidarity to your, brother, your black brothers and sisters and to, and to give a voice for people that may not have one. What might it look like for you to lend your voice? Here's another thing you can do is you can leverage your power. You can leverage your power. You can leverage your privilege. Uh, what I love about what Matt Chandler did in that video that I watched on Right Now Media is that he's got, Matt Chandler has some power. He's got some influence. He's got a platform. He's got a lot of people that listen to him. And just by, by putting on this event, by naming the injustice, just by putting that out there, he was leveraging his influence for the sake of people that maybe don't have it. And so he asked the question, what power do I have? What privilege do I have? What influence do I have? And how could I leverage that in service of people that don't have it? that might be on the margins, that might need us to speak up for them. And there's a lot of ways we can do this. Um, you think about it, you know, some of you are teachers, some of you are bosses, a lot of you are parents. Yesterday, when I sat down with my boys, we watched the video together. And I was just, I have some influence over their lives. I have some, I could direct them. I, I wanted to expose them to this, to, to leverage what I've been given to help them understand. Jesus is our model. Jesus, our Lord and master who had influence. He, he leverages his power by serving humanity. How might we leverage our power to serve people that might need us to serve them? Um, I read a book call, called uh, March. Um, it was an old classic novel, and, and, and in this book, there was a story about a, a woman. Her name was Marmee 
March. And uh, in the story, she, she's there and she's breastfeeding her little baby. She was an abolitionist back in the eight, 1800s. And uh, it kind of talks about how she got that passion to do that. And there's a scene in the book where she's breastfeeding her baby and she's weeping. And her father just died, and she's a breastfeeding mom, so there's a lot of reasons why she might be emotional, right, and struggling. But uh, her husband comes up, and he says, honey, why are you crying? Thinking maybe it was her dad, maybe it was something else that was going on in her life. And she says, how can I sit here and happily feed my own baby when my black sisters can't feed theirs? And so this empathy led her into action and to leverage what she had in order to fight for other people. Sometimes the only problems we own are our own problems. The only problems that concern us are the problems that concern us. What might it look like to say, what, are, what problems are out there that I may not be the victim of, but I can go out and leverage my power to help? Finally, I want you to lean on the cross. Lean on the cross. Do you like how they're all L's? Isn't that, isn't that clever? <laughs> What I love about this passage is that Peter is, is so revolutionary um, in changing the social structures of his day, and at the center of it is the message of the cross. Right here in the middle of this passage, he talks about Jesus, who, suffer, who himself suffered unjustly for our sins. And the cross is a powerful force to bring re re racial reconciliation, isn't it? Because in the cross, the master became the slave. In the cross, Jesus Christ, he pays the price for the sins of all humanity so that all of those who, who accept him can be elevated and redeemed and given a new status and brought into God's family. One of the best places, one of the only deep radical places where racial reconciliation can happen is at the foot of the cross, where brothers and sisters join arms and say all of us are sinners broken by darkness, but all of us have been brought into God's family. And so what might it look like for, what might it look like for you to lean on the cross? One, one of the things that um, I heard this week is that someone told me, he says, you know, I... I, when I started looking around at my friendships, the people that I hang out with, all of them were the same color as me. What might I, and he says, what I'm trying to do is be intentional about developing relationships with people that don't look like me. I think that goes a long way. What might it look like for us to be intentional about being the church, being God's multi-ethnic family and intentionally developing friendships where we are united around the cross with one another. So let's, let's pray today as we go towards communion. Father, we thank you so much for this passage. And uh, God, we thank you that um, in this ancient world, you said in your words such revolutionary things. And we pray that we might bring these things into our world. Help us to listen. Help us to learn. Help us, God, to lend our voice. Help us to leverage our power and privilege wherever that is, whatever that might be, whether it's economic or influence or whatever. Help us, God, to embrace the cross. Help us to preach and lean on and rest in the wonderful message of your crucifixion. May it give us hope.
And Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to go to the Lord's table. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Through this bread, I'm demonstrating to all this world, all of the world, that I, that I love you, that I'm willing to die for you. So let's take a few minutes and then we'll partake together. partake of the bread. In the same way Jesus took the cup, he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for the remission of your sins. Uh, Through the blood of Jesus Christ, forgiveness is offered, redemption is offered. All of us can be brought into God's family and rest in the fact that we are fully accepted, fully redeemed. And so let's partake of the blood of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we um, gather around your table, we pray, God, that you would Give us your heart for people on the margins. Give us your heart for people that are on the wrong end of injustice. People that may be facing inequality. I pray that we as your, as your church uh, would speak out, that we would demonstrate racial reconciliation, that you would give us wisdom and creativity to know how we can do that here in Batesville. And we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name.